Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be make li- made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Grant. As we come to this passage, let's remember that the Christians who were hearing these words uh, were experiencing hostility around them. They were a small church, they were Jews, and they were being persecuted. God would have felt distant. They might have been asking, does anyone understand? Does anyone see us struggling here? Does God even care about my situation? Maybe you feel this way right now. Maybe you're asking or saying, you know, I'm not understood. My parents don't understand what's going on with me. My friends can't relate because they've never experienced this pain of loss that I'm going through right now. My husband doesn't understand me. My wife doesn't get it. Why is it sometimes I pour my guts out and the counsel I get just seems to miss the mark and doesn't help me? Rich Mullins once said in a song, sometimes my life just don't make sense at all. When the mountains look so big and my faith just seems so small. I wake up in the night and feel the dark. It's so hot inside my soul. I swear there must be blisters on my heart. Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls. Now I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. I'm shaking like a leaf. Have you felt that way? Do you ever feel like there is no help? Do you ever feel like sometimes you're pressing back even against the help that's available to you in Christ and you don't know what to do? Well, Hebrews 2, 5 to 18 reveal to us there's a helper greater than any other. And his name is Jesus. But sometimes we don't 
go and run to get the help because we're not sure. Maybe we don't trust them. We're not sure if they love us because we're experiencing something hard. I know when we were working on the building you know, a year or so ago, cleaning things up, some of you may remember, uh, I stepped on a screw that was coming up out of the floor that went through my shoe into my foot. And it was as painful as it sounds. But the next day, Olivia, who some of you know is a nurse practitioner, she, she wanted to make sure I was okay and she wanted to take a look at it. Now I know she is a medical professional and she knows a lot. But my foot hurt. Why did I let her look at it? Why did I let her help? Because I trusted her. Because she's gentle and patient and kind. And I know she loves me. Because it's been said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I know many of you know that Jesus is there and can be your help, but sometimes you might be hesitant to move forward, to go to him because of everything that's going on. So we must start with knowing that God does care. Before we get to knowing how Jesus helps and the fact that he's like us and that he can help us like no one else, we must know that God cares. Look at verses Five and six, it says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And then he goes to quote a scripture. He, has a, he says, it has been testified somewhere. Did you ever quote scripture like that? Yeah, I don't remember where it's at. It's somewhere, but the Bible says this. And that's what he's saying. He's actually quoting from Psalm, from Psalm chapter eight. And he says, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? That's what he says. And what, what, we're, what we're finding out in there is that he met us in our condition. He loved us enough to meet us in our condition. So if you hold your finger there and you flip back over to Psalm 8, we get a little bit of a context of what he's saying when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? It starts like this. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, he's overwhelmed by the greatness of God. The psalmist is understanding his weakness. He's understanding his smallness. In a world where we are taught to find ourselves at the center of the universe and relate to things with us being at the center, we must realize we're not at the center. We must realize his greatness. Maybe if you've ever had the opportunity to be on an airplane, when you go to take off, everything looks like normal size. And as you get higher and higher, everything gets smaller and smaller. And you see the vastness of how great this creation is as the psalmist was seeing. You might see the vastness of the Grand Canyon, or you might see how great the plains are, or you might see how deep and wide the ocean is. Because when you're flying over the ocean, all you see is the ocean. Yet, in the midst of all that greatness, 
when we can get lost in all of it. We know from Psalm 139 that our God knows everything about us. And that's why the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why should God care about us? When Isaiah says, all all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. I mean, we fell at Right after creation, Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit and they rebelled against God and that continued. Why would God even come after us? He cares about us not because of something in us, but because of who he is. He cares about us not because of something in us, but because of who he is. God is mindful of us and he meets us in our condition. And it goes on. He quotes continues to quote the psalm. He says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. The incarnation isn't just for Christmas. God comes to the place where we are. He meets you in your state of rebellion. He meets you in the place of discouragement. He meets you in your mess. He meets you in whatever situation you find yourself in. God came in the flesh, Jesus Christ though for a little while he was lower than the angels. But as he was lower than the angels, there's nothing outside of the limit of his power. Nothing is outside of the control of Christ because it says here, you've crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. That's what it says. And the the psalm even goes on. You put everything in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing outside the control of Jesus Christ. He meets us where we are. There's nothing outside of his control. So when you face the storms of life, do you know Christ has dominion over everything? So if he's over everything, why is it that I don't see him over everything? Well, look look at your Bibles. Verse 8. So again, he says, putting everything in subjection over his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Everything is in subjection to him, but yet we still live in fallen creation. We look around and we see pain and we see suffering. And it doesn't seem like Jesus is in control. When life is spinning out of control, we can even ask the question, God, don't you care? But there's one place we can always go back to to remind us, even when the storms of life are clouding us and we're like, I'm just like this. I don't see him. I don't see this creation in subjection to him. We need to be reminded that he cares for us intimately because he met us in our condition and Jesus tasted death for 
us. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Even though it says in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. It says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You never need to look further than the cross of Christ to know how much he loves you. Now I get maybe in the, the point of trial, that might be the, not be the truth that we first come off our lips to share with someone, but that's the truth that we need to, to dig deep into, to put our anchor deep into. So when the trials come, we know when the waves are crashing us left and right, he loves us. We can know that he cares when we struggle and we know that he can help because he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But he's not just one who went to a place to pay the penalty for our sins, being completely different than us, something, doing something out there, something way back in the past. He cares for us, but he can help us because he is like us. He can help us because he is like us. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was his humanity that enabled him to bring us to glory. He had to be man to bring us to glory. He had to be man so that, that he could be a substitute for us. And so he made a way. He was the founder. He was the author. He was the person who, who established the way. He opened the way for us. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce said this, he is the savior who blazed the trail of salvation along which alone God's many sons could be brought to glory. Man created by God for his glory was prevented by sin from attaining that glory until the son of man came and opened up by his death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As his people's representative and forerunner, he has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. We have a place that we go because we follow after Christ. Like Lewis and Clark, you may have read about in school, they came and they kind of explored this territory and went through dangerous things. That was nothing compared to what Christ did. Jesus opens the way for us to follow and he can help us because he was like us, because we are his brothers. We are brothers and sisters to the king. Look at verses 11 and 12. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. There's a quote here. He's quoting another Old Testament passage, Psalm 22, 22, which is a messianic psalm in which Christ refers to his church as the brethren. This means we and the Son of God share the same nature and belong to the same family. We are in the same family. We are united with him in the same family. He is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. He's not ashamed of you. Rather, it looks like the big brother who's going to come and he's like you, but yet he protects you. He looks out for you because he's like us. We're brothers. He's like us, and he became like us to also destroy and to deliver. Again, look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We must not think that the devil and Jesus are equal parts. Like whatever your favorite boxing movie is. If I reference one, you will think I'm old. And if I reference another, you will think I'm young. But whatever your favorite boxing movie is, or even if you hate it, you know, there's this thing going on at the end of the movie. There's always the match that one of them, you know, does this and he gets the uppercut and the other one gets that one. And and it always ends and like, oh, and he finally has the one punch and knocks him out. That's not what it looks like between Jesus and the devil. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. Now, that doesn't mean that he annihilated Satan. In other words, that doesn't mean he just snapped his finger and he was gone. No, what it means is he took from him the power of death. The death that puts us in the grave and has eternal separation from God. He took that from him. So it's like the enemy comes up, you know, loaded with weapons on his side and goes to pull them out only to discover all of the ammunition is gone. He took away the power of death from the enemy. The devil's goal is to keep people from believing the gospel and living in the good of the gospel. And Albert Muller said, Christians must take the devil seriously because scripture testifies that Satan is our enemy. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He delights in perverting the gospel and preventing it from being preached. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a destroyer. He is a tempter. But we don't take him lightly. We 
must be confident he has no power over death because that has been destroyed and his future is absolutely certain. So you need not fear the enemy's schemes because his power was destroyed. And then look at verse 15, there's deliverance. So first that he, through death, he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is a harsh reality that most people try to avoid but cannot escape. Some are consumed with health and wellness, and I think it's a good thing to be healthy and well and exercise. Those are good things. But there was a season of my life in which I had some health issues, and I was consumed with those things because I was certain I was going to avoid early death by not eating meat or any processed foods and by exercising uh, an hour plus every day and I was super intense. But I wasn't trusting God. I was trying to avoid death. Young people can think you are immune to death and, and therefore you just ignore it thinking that it's not going to happen to you. Some are completely ignoring all wisdom as if it numbs their brain to not think about it. Some people drown themselves in binge-watching their favorite shows so they don't have to deal with the reality of death. Some are drinking more alcohol than ever to stop thinking about death. Yet, no matter how much we ignore the reality, death is inevitable. And some of you who are here, or maybe some of you who are tuning in online, you aren't ready to face death. Because when your eternity is not found in Christ, then you are subject to a life of slavery through the fear of death. That's what the deliverance was fun. Through the fear of death, they were subject to a life of slavery. You're going to constantly have that hanging over your head. But you do not have to fear death any longer. You simply need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Friends, if you are found in Christ, you do not need to fear death. I know a number of families in our church have been exposed to death or the possibility of death. Cardiac events. Unexpected tragedies. Impending surgeries. Let the reality of death drive us to the deliverer of death. Because Jesus delivered us, because he died on the cross, we can say with Paul, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus came to set us free from the fear of death. Jesus came to destroy the one who had the power over death. 
Because death for us is the doorway to eternity with Christ. So we need not fear. Now there's there's something that's going to be on the minds of some and maybe not of others. But I want to just take a, a little commercial break. Okay, we're... So it's kind of applying to the text, but it's not the main thrust of the text. But I just want to take a commercial break. In fact, I just really want to get serious that it's a commercial break. And, and I'm going to go to the kitchen table instead of the podium. Like, I wish this was a kitchen table, and I wish it was filled with none of the yummy food. But maybe you have a cup, and I have a cup. We should sit at the table for a minute. I realize that as I came to this text at one in the morning last night, and then again at 4.30 in the morning, I did sleep a little bit in between there, that this reality of not fearing death is something that we should hold on to and encourage one another with. But it's also been a truth that's been used to divide because of this little thing. There's a reality. You can, you can wear one of these things because you're afraid. Because you're afraid of death or you're afraid of pain and suffering. Uh, there's also a reality that you can, you can wear one of these things at the same time and love people. Because there are some who will come into our midst that, that, that don't have, have verse 15 settled in their heart yet. And I know, I don't know about you, but when, when I've struggled with truth in Scripture, um, I don't respond really well when someone says, suck it up, buttercup. I don't. I, I, uh, but, but I've been slow sometimes, and I've needed some to be patient with me as they share truth with me and walk with me. I also realize there's going to be some who are going to walk through that door. who don't have Christ. Some who, 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 who need to feel comfortable and I'm going to have to respond with 1 Corinthians 9.22, which says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So what's the right response? Because it's certainly not to fear. What would Paul do? I mean, Paul, he, 
He would go and preach the gospel somewhere, right? And they would beat him and they would take him out and his friends would clean him up and then he'd go back in and he'd preach the gospel again. But Paul also said, hey, don't, don't, don't destroy your brother uh, who, who doesn't see things the same way that you do. And Paul's the one that said, uh, I become all things to all men. Well, did Jesus wear a mask? Well, Jesus would not have worn a mask. I'd, that's not the thing I'm going to ask Jesus when I see him. It is not. This is what I know about Jesus. He healed every single person who he came in counter with. And he also forgave those who were struggling to believe in him and have faith because Peter denied him three times. And yet he put Peter over as head of his church. So which is right? Is it faith or is it love? It's both. This is faith, hope, and love. If you're paying attention as Mark preached those four excellent sermons on love, which you should listen to again because they're so helpful. They're both there. So what's the right answer? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that this season's not going to last forever. I do know that none of us have walked this road before. I do know that we know in part. I think all of us are going to have that experience when we get to heaven. We're going to be like, yeah, I got that wrong. Let us not let the devil use these issues to drive us apart. May these, you know, the culture is fragmented. The culture is eating each other alive. May these issues drive us to Christ because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. For surely it's not the angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In verse 17, it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We're family. In preaching class in the training center for church planting, one pastor told us, Hey, when you preach, you're going to have hard things going on in your life. Don't leak. Well, I just turned the faucet on so I wouldn't leak. Just let it flow a little bit. We're brothers and sisters because we are bought by the blood of Jesus. And we should not be distracted. And that little aside to sit at the table with you was not so that we would be distracted, but maybe this so that we would have some perspective because the thing we don't want to get distracted from is Christ. Is Christ who came and he was like us in every respect. He had to be made like his 
brothers. Not like these people over here with this perspective. Not like these people over this perspective. No, actually, the ones that look like together had to look like us all. Jesus knows what it's like to be a helpless baby. He knows what it is like to be a growing child. He knows what it's like to be in junior high age. He has experienced weariness. He has experienced hunger. He has experienced thirst. He has experienced hurt. He has experienced pain and sorrow that comes from the death of a loved one. He knows what it's like to be despised and rejected, to be lied about and falsely accused. He knows what it's like when his friends reject him. He knows what it's like to stand innocent and be found guilty. He experienced physical suffering and death. All of this equipped him for the ministry. The ministry of being a merciful and faithful high priest. Let us remind one another of this one. Let us certainly be in faith for what God has called us to do. We should certainly have conviction and be in faith for that. But this is the thing that rallies us together. Because we all need a priest. We've all fallen short. We all need someone to come and advocate before the Father for us. And he's merciful toward us and faithful toward God. And he can never fail in his priestly duties. You know, the Old Testament priests, they not only would make the sacrifices for the people so their sins could be forgiven, but they had to make sacrifices for themselves because they themselves were also sinners. But this, this high priest has no need to make a sacrifice for himself because he's perfect. And he became the sacrifice. As it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. I went for a drive with my daughter to go see the ice sculptures yesterday, and we were playing this game, What's Your Favorite? Okay, Dad, do you know what my favorite ice cream is? Do you know what my favorite this is? And then she throws out this question. What's your favorite word? And I didn't have to think hard. I said, propitiation. And she was like, what's that? This is what propitiation is and why it's my favorite word. Because propitiation isn't simply, and this is not simple, that the wrath of God has been abated because our sins are paid for. So justice happens. And that's an amazing thing that our sins are forgiven and forgotten. The thing that's amazing about propitiation is propitiation also means that it brings God's favor. 
So you're not just simply free from the conviction or the weight of well, the, the punishment that you would deserve, but rather you also receive the favor of God who loves you and embraces you. That's why propitiation is so amazing. So he made propitiation for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God, but also to invite the favor of God. So treasure that truth, friends. Because when you're struggling with sin, you don't just have to ask for forgiveness and go, okay, God's not going to be mad at me anymore. No, he comes and runs and he embraces you. Because favor has, has come to you, and favor comes to you as a father, even when you are running from him, he runs after you. Just like those of you who have parents of small children, and they take off, you don't just let them run, you run after them. That favor has come to you because God's not standoffish to you because of sin. No, he looks on you, and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And he comes to you. That's why propitiation is so amazing. So then, as the passage ends, to become the perfect helper in our temptation. We need all of that background about Christ, about God's love, so that we can lean forward and go. But here's the reality. He becomes the perfect helper in our temptation. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted He understands because he is in every event that takes place in your life. You realize there's nobody else that's like that. He's present for every event in your life, but he's not just present. He has also experienced every temptation you will ever face, and he never gave in. When you got to do something and you want someone to help, you're not asking the person that's failed 50 times. You're asking the person that nails it every time because you know they're going to get help and he's ready to help us with any temptation because no temptation ever overtook him. He is able to help. It is not just that he has the ability to help, but in the original language, it literally means he runs to the cry of a child. It means to bring help when needed. Only he can bring that help when you need it. So when we cry out, he comes. He's the one that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says, go therefore and make disciples and I will be with you. So whether you're in need of the comfort or whether you're in need of the boldness, he comes running to you and he can help because any temptation in any of those situations, he has experienced and he did it perfectly. So remember the lyrics the song by Rich Mullins called Hold Me Jesus. He said, well, sometimes my life don't make sense at all when the mountains seem 
looks so big and my faith just seems so small. He says, so hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? And he says, and I woke up in the night and feel the dark. It's so hot inside my soul. I swear there must be blisters on my heart. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? And he goes on, surrender. Don't come natural to me. I don't, I'd rather fight for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls, so I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. And the Salvation Army Band is playing this hymn. And your grace rings out so deep, it makes my resistance seem so thin. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? When you find yourself in the midst of temptation and struggle, know your God cares for you. In the midst of this grand universe, God sent his son to live for you and to die for you. God gave him power over everything. Jesus suffered every temptation that you will ever face, and he never gave in. He never gave in. He doesn't hold his perfection over you. Rather, he holds you. And he comes running to you to help in your time of need. He's able to help those who are being tempted because he's greater than any helper there ever was or will be. May we stir one another up to look to him. Let's pray. Father, Father, I know I know many of us come here this morning with weights and burdens. Some were burdened by dysfunction of family. Some of us are burdened by the weight of death. Some of us are burdened by just the crushing blow of the disorienting reality of the trial we're walking in. Father, you have given us a gift to to see that you are for us, to see that you gave the ultimate sacrifice of your son, and I pray, God, that we would treasure that. this morning and you've never trusted in Christ know that you don't need to fear anymore that that the work has been finished and you can 
confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you can pray that prayer right now. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I've prayed that prayer, but my faith seems weak. These things are wrecking me. I don't know what's going to happen. Jesus experienced every single one of those temptations. And he's available to you right now to help. So as we transition to sing this song, stand only if that's the right response for you. Sit if you need to engage with the Lord right now to get the help that you need. Reach out to someone you're seated with and ask for prayer because they're a means of grace. They're your brother or sister in Christ by whom Jesus gave his blood for that's there to be his hands and feet for you right now to pray for you if you need prayer. So Father, I ask God that you administer to us right now as we respond, whether that's in prayer, whether that's in song, whether that's in silence. Thank you for meeting us and please meet us again right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.